So 2 Samuel 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city and fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, 
the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of them king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now we'll turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and we're reading from verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've just read a disturbing story. But it's part of your word, and we trust that your word always has something to say to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you might help us to listen to what you have to say. We pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher tonight as we wrestle with this passage. Amen. In 1562, the great reformer John Calvin began a sermon on this passage with these words. He said... Now, here is a story which should make your hair stand straight up on end whenever you think of it. That a servant of God as excellent as David should fall into such a serious and enormous sin that he could be judged the most morally lax and promiscuous person in the world. This story is more than we ever wanted to know about David. A story told with brutal honesty and with an unusual style. I wonder if you noticed that. I wonder if you noticed what was missing from the story. I'm kind of hoping that you didn't, because it's taken me a lifetime of reading this passage and hearing sermons on it to notice this. What's remarkable about this story is its complete lack of any emotional content. This is a story about sex and desire, about power and vulnerability, about shame and integrity, about lies and cover-up, all recounted without telling us how any of the characters think or feel. This is an incredibly emotional story told without any emotion. We aren't told what's going on in David's heart. Was he conflicted or brazen? Was he ashamed or arrogant? We don't know. We aren't told what is going on in Bathsheba's heart. Was she a 
seductive temptress who lured David into adultery? Or was she a naive young girl intoxicated by the flattery of a very powerful man? Or was she taken against her will? We don't know. Nor do we know what was going on in Uriah's heart either. Did he understand what had happened? Did he somehow know what had happened? And that's why he refused to go home and to be with his wife? Not wanting to give David the satisfaction of covering over his sin? Or is he, as exactly as he's presented, a model soldier? We don't know. We don't even know what's going on in Joab's heart. You know, was Joab... You know, understanding of what was going on. Did he knew the reason for the plan and happy to help David clean up his mess? Or was he furious with his king for asking him to dispose of one of his finest fighters? We just don't know. From beginning to end, the author does not choose to entertain these questions. And that choice has led many a preacher to speculate about what is going on inside the characters, even, I must confess, myself from time to time. But the more and more I read this passage, the more and more I realise that we just don't know what is happening in the hearts of any of these characters. All we have are the facts, just the facts. It reads almost like courtroom testimony. What we do have are the behaviour and the choices of David. And choosing to present the story in this way shines the light squarely on David and his actions and his choices. In fact, without knowing the motivations of any of the other characters, we're not even sure that they even had choices to make. Everyone in this chapter is subject to David's powerful desires and his wicked designs. And that's the point. This passage confronts us with what David did. And it leaves us no opportunity to excuse or to justify his actions. And so really, I just want to talk to you about two things tonight. Two things. First of all, I just want to take us through the story again and help us to see how the story unfolds. And then I want us to ask a question. But against the the background of this almost emotionless story, what are our emotions? How do we feel about what David did? So firstly then, let me just remind you about how this story unfolds. In verse 1, we're told that spring has come. And so it's the time when the ancient kings would go to war to continue or to initiate the conflicts needed to strengthen their kingdom. But David doesn't go. Instead, he sends Joab out to continue the conflict with the Ammonites that actually began last chapter, in chapter 10. And briefly, we follow Joab and his men. Uh, Joab, as usual, is very effective. He ravages the Ammonites and he besieges Rabbah, about 60 kilometres to the east of Jerusalem. And there's more of this story to be told, but we won't hear the end of it until the end of chapter 12. And at first, the great warrior king remaining behind in Jerusalem would appear to be a problem. And it's curious, but I don't think there's too much to worry about yet. Uh, This appears to be the kind of standard military operating procedure of the nation of Israel. 
Uh, Joab would go out first with the kind of elite guard, the, the professional soldiers. And once he had the matter in hand and Israel had the advantage, uh, then David would rally the host of Israel, the kind of the non-military men of Israel, the, the militia, so to speak, and then they would go out and they would finish off the job. And that way, all Israel would share the victory and share too in the plunder. That's exactly what happened back in chapter 10. The real question is, why does the story remain with David? What could possibly be more important than this latest military campaign with the Ammonites? And the answer is in verses 2 to 4. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The telling emphasizes David's power. He saw her. He sent someone to find out about her. He sent someone to get her. He slept with her. We see the actions that David took more than we see anything else. And so we also see the small incremental steps that David took that became such a great failure. And in that sense, it's not unique to David. We see the same pattern over again in our own sins. Perhaps even in our own sexual sins. It begins with seeing. And then seeing again and noticing someone's attractiveness. Then an expression of interest, a, a curiosity. David sends someone to find out who she is. Which becomes an invitation, which becomes something else. And at any one of those points, at any one of those steps, David could have stopped. Uh, David uh, could have seen her and then rushed inside the house, embarrassed at what he had seen. Or he could have asked after her and then realized what a foolish path he was walking down and left it alone. He could have even invited her over and spoken with her for a time and then just sent her home. At each point, he could have stopped, but he didn't. At each point, he takes the next step and the next step and the next step. And before you know it, David has done the unthinkable. And there are no excuses. Bathsheba's actions in and of themselves are not unusual or seductive. She is cleansing herself seven days after her period has ended, according to the law, according to Leviticus chapter 15. Now, that is a proper and a godly thing to do. There's no reason to think that she was in any way being indiscreet. It's David's elevated position standing on the roof of his palace that means that he is the one who is intruding upon what was otherwise a private and even secret moment of Bathsheba's devotion to God. The great irony is that in Bathsheba washing herself so that she is ritually clean, she becomes caught up in this most unclean of acts. 
But seven days after her menstruation has ended also means that David takes Bathsheba at the most fertile time in her cycle. And so the message of verse 5 comes as no surprise. And nor can there be any doubt as to who the father is. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. It's fascinating what Bathsheba is called in verse 5, the woman. Perhaps that's all she was to David. But now David has a problem. And really the rest of the chapter is devoted to the story of how David tries to solve the problem of Bathsheba's pregnancy and how that initial sin is now going to lead to an escalating series of sins in order to cover up David's crime. Uh, Verses 6 to 11 is plan A. Plan A is simple enough, get Uriah home from the battle, send him home to his wife and then everyone would think that the child is Uriah's. And so that's what David does. David brings him home, inquires about the fighting and how the battle is going. Uh, But Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah sleeps at the the entrance to David's palace along with David's servants. I think that means David's soldiers. And the next morning, uh, David, upon hearing about this, asks Uriah why. And in verse 11, Uriah's answer is, is that of a model soldier. Have a look at verse 11. Uriah said to David... The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go into my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah is is a Hittite. He's not even a full-blooded Israelite. And yet he seems more loyal to God, more loyal to Israel, more loyal to Israel's armies than even David is. In fact, it's impossible not to feel the bitter irony of this little interchange between David and Uriah. David has not shown Uriah the same loyalty and respect that Uriah has just shown to David. And that little reference to tents and little reference to houses reminds us that it's only a few chapters ago, back in chapter 7, where God made extraordinary promises to the family of David of the goodness and the blessing that he would bestow on the house of David forever. And so here again is another moment for David to be seized with humble repentance, to remember the God who has been so good to him and to stop this cycle of ongoing sin. But David does not. In fact, David's determination to cover up his tracks only seems to increase. So plan B, verses 7 to 13. Uh, Plan B, it's an oldie but a goodie. It's the same as plan A, only now with alcohol. David gets Uriah drunk and then sends him home to his wife. And David does succeed in getting Uriah drunk, but actually drunk Uriah has more integrity than sober David at this point. And so the plan unravels. And so then David resorts to plan C, murder. Verses 14 and onwards. Plan C is arrogant 
and shameless. Uriah is sent back to the battle with a letter in his hand that contains his own death sentence. David is so confident in Uriah's loyalty that he knows Uriah would never dare open up a secret message between a king and his general. The instructions are for Joab to have Uriah killed and to make it look like the normal to and fro of battle. And Joab dutifully carries out the plan, he even improves on it. He makes sure that it's not just Uriah that falls, but some of the other soldiers do as well. And then Joab sends a messenger back to David. And the text actually goes into quite a bit of detail about the instructions that Joab gives to the messenger. It's far fuller and far bigger than the rather economic narrative of David's initial adultery. Uh, But Joab anticipates the way that David might react to the foolish battle strategy that he himself orchestrated. But the point of all of this, the point of it is is to realise that Joab knows as soon as David hears that Uriah is dead, nothing else is going to matter. And that's the point, I think. This emphasises how single-minded David has become, caring more for his own reputation than even for the lives of his soldiers. But so it proves to be. The messenger returns home, clearly very nervous about delivering bad news to David. But in verse 25, David's response, it sounds pious enough, but to those of us who know the truth, the words are sickening. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. At this point, it's hard to even recognise that this is the, the same David that we've been reading about for so long. But with the success of Plan C, Project Cover-Up is complete. And in verse 26, David is able to legitimise his relationship with Bathsheba and with the child that she carries. And once again, Bathsheba isn't called Bathsheba, she's called Uriah's wife, reminding us that just because this looks like it's cleaned up, none of this is right. And there is nothing legitimate about this at all. In fact, by my count, David has broken at least six of the Ten Commandments. He has coveted quite literally his neighbour's wife. He's committed adultery. He's borne false witness on multiple occasions. He has murdered. He has stolen another man's wife. And perhaps worst of all, he has made his reputation into a god. A god far more important to David than the God whose invisible and yet unmistakable hand made him king. And the final sentence of this chapter makes that abundantly clear. See, up until now, there has been no emotion, no moral comment, no inner monologue, no judgment of any kind on anything that has happened. From any of the main characters, from David, from Bathsheba, from Uriah or from Joab, the story has been told in a clinical, even a detached manner. It's the story of a powerful man 
sinning and getting away with it, even though he's left a trail of destruction in his wake. But now, in the last sentence of verse 27, we are reminded of the invisible and yet unmistakable fifth character in this story and what he thinks of what has happened. There is someone who has seen every action of David, who knows every choice of David, and even sees what we do not see, the motivations of David's heart. And what is his conclusion? But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's an incredibly powerful statement. A statement all the more shocking because this is the first time in the chapter we actually hear about how someone feels. In a narrative that is stripped bare of all emotion, here now is an emotion that leaps off the page. God hates what David has done. And he is the only one in the chapter whose feelings we are told... Because he is the one in the chapter whose feelings matter the most. And God's feelings mean that David will not get away with what he has done. There will be consequences and there will be justice. These actions did not occur in an emotionless moral vacuum. David thought he was the most powerful person in the chapter and so he could do this and he would get away with it. But David is not. David is very vulnerable to God and how God feels about what he has done. And so there will be consequences. And we'll learn more about them next week when we get to look at chapter 12. But it is the colour of God's feeling against the otherwise monochrome background that provokes the critical question for us. How do we feel? about what David has done. How do we feel about this story? Now, I want to suggest to you that I think there are actually four emotions that we could be feeling. There's perhaps more, but I think there's at least four emotions that we could be feeling now as we listen to this story. Firstly, disappointment. Disappointment. As readers of the whole story of 1 and 2 Samuel, we feel the weight of this story's tragedy. Up until now, David has been a great hero. Yes, there's been a few moments where there's perhaps been warning signs, uh, his many wives, for instance. He hasn't been perfect, but there's been lots to love about David. He was so loyal and so loving to King Saul, even while King Saul was trying to kill him. He showed such compassion and kindness to the house of Saul, even after Saul had died. And all throughout the civil war between Israel and Judah, David never shed blood. He had a deep trust in God. He waited for God patiently to make him king, just as God had promised. And there's so many other things as well. David had led the people of Israel victorious in battle so many times. He was the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in an extraordinary display of humility before God and before all of the people. And all the while, David has shown integrity and generosity and godliness. 
his star has been on the rise. But here it comes crashing back down to earth. Even if we simply compare the David of chapter 11 with the David of the previous two chapters, chapters 9 and 10 that we heard about last week, it's hard to imagine that it's the same person. In chapters 9 and 10, David was known for his kindness. The kindness that he showed to Mephibosheth, the lame son of Jonathan. The kindness that he showed to the son of an old treaty partner. But in chapter 11, David shows no kindness to Bathsheba or to Uriah, to speak nothing of his other wives, to speak nothing of the other soldiers and their families who were killed in the battle. In 2 Samuel 11, David is anything but kind. But the more that we expect from someone, the more they can disappoint us. We expected so much from David and that makes 2 Samuel chapter 11 perhaps one of the most disappointing chapters in all of the Bible. But disappointment is not all that we might be feeling. Some of us also feel shame as we read these words. And those who don't, probably we ought to. Some of us feel shame because David's sins remind us of our own. Perhaps David's sins are similar to our own. Some of us have had spectacular falls like this. Some of us recognize the progression of little steps that lead to great failure because we have made those little steps. Some of us have sinned sexually in ways that continue to haunt us. Some of us may even have committed adultery. Which is why for some of us these words are painful to read. For some of us there is a very uncomfortable familiarity with David. His shame reminds us of our own and of moments we would rather forget. For others we don't feel shame. But instead we feel disgust and disapproval at what David did. Some of us don't sit here recognising David's sins as our own and even find it hard to imagine how we might ever get caught up in something like this. Some of us might even have been deeply hurt by behaviour such as David's. And we look down our noses upon David and on anyone who is like him, and in some ways rightly so. But can I suggest to you that that is a very dangerous way to think about this chapter? Because really what you are feeling is not disgust or disapproval. Really what you are feeling is pride. Pride that you are not as bad as David is. Pride because you have not done what David has done. And pride is a very dangerous emotion in 2 Samuel. Time and time again we have been reminded that God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. And as we'll see next week, it is David's pride that is his undoing. And pride is just a dangerous emotion in the reader of 2 Samuel as it is to those who are part of the story. 
because it's not as if any of us are without sin. Think for a moment about the story again. The beginning of the story, David's adultery and those, those steps that he took. There are three big ones, I think. See, desire, take. Even got a slide there for you. David saw Bathsheba. And then he saw her again. He saw that she was very beautiful. Literally, he saw that she was good. And he desired her. He wanted her. Even though she did not belong to him. She was another man's wife. And then he took her. And it is a very familiar pattern. This is the pattern of every sin. This is the pattern of every fall. In fact, this was the pattern of the first fall. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you will find the same pattern and you will even find the same words. Eve saw the fruit and then she saw the fruit again. She saw that it was good. She saw that she desired it. And then lastly, she took it and she ate And now that I've told you this pattern, actually, you'll go away and you'll read your Bibles and you'll see it time and time and time again. But when does the sin actually occur? What is the point at which God is displeased? Because most people would say, well, it's it's the last point, isn't it? It's the taking. It was when David slept with Bathsheba. That's when he committed adultery. That was when God was displeased. And then all the other things that happened after that. But what's the Lord Jesus say? We read it, didn't we? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. What did he say? He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, when would Jesus say that the sin occurred? And the answer is, it was when David desired her. That was when he gave in to temptation. That was when he was seduced by the darkness of his own heart. And that's why he was so easily able to make all of those other little choices. The big choice, the choice to desire, had already been made. And so what I'm saying is this. What I'm saying is that it is a mistake for us to simply pass judgment over David without any examination of our own lives. Yes, his fall is spectacular. And his sins are many and serious. There is no doubt about that. And we may not be like him in many respects. But what truly separates me from David? And the answer is I'm not a king. I don't have his power. I can't just see a woman I desire and summon her to my bedroom. I'm very glad I don't have that power. But in my heart, Am I any different than David was? And in your heart, are you any different to David?
Jesus correctly locates the battleground in the hearts of each and every one of us. And actually, as a very wise person in my growth group observed to me this week, thanks to the wonders of the internet, actually, I can summon at least the image of a woman that I desire anytime I like. None of us are without sin. None of us are without weakness. None of us are beyond danger. None of us are immune to temptation. And so surely none of us, by the standards of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, could ever say that we are completely pure and devoid of any sexual sin. And that is to say nothing of any other sin, which all follow exactly the same pattern. And how does God feel about us when we sin? God sees all that we do. God sees every choice that we make. And God even sees what so often we cannot see in ourselves. He sees the true motivations of our hearts. And he is displeased. And it's only when we grasp that that we actually grasp one last thing, one last feeling. It's only when we begin to see ourselves in this story in some way, it's only when we can recognise our own sins and just how similar they are to David, it's then that we begin to see where this chapter is pointing us. As we recognise our sin, we also recognise that David is not the king, he is not the hero that we seek. And so we look forward to the day when God might raise up a better king than David. Which of course he has already done. And when we realise that, when we realise that God has given us a better king, then we feel not not regret or, or shame or pride, but we feel gratitude. Gratitude for God's provision. God's provision of Jesus. David fails, and when we are humble, we can admit that we fail too. But then we remember that Jesus fails no test, not even his own tests. Jesus was and is completely without sin. And this passage makes that truth about Jesus even more astonishing. Because every time Jesus faced temptation, he stared it down. Every time that little chain of decisions began, Jesus started by making the right choice. Every time there was pressure from Satan or pressure from others, Jesus stood firm. Every time he was faced with a choice to honour or to dishonour God, Jesus chose to honour his Father. And so God was never displeased with Jesus. God never looked at Jesus and felt that anything that he had done was evil. God was only ever pleased with Jesus. Remember the the voice from heaven when Jesus was baptized. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. No temptation was ever too much for the son of God. Not sexual temptation. And not even the greatest temptation that Jesus ever faced the temptation to abandon his journey to the cross. 
For it was at the cross where Jesus submitted to his Father's will, where he drank the cup of God's wrath, where he was nailed and suffered and died in our place, where he took upon himself all of God's displeasure at our sin. And his sacrifice for us was perfect because the life he lived was perfect. And the death he died was sufficient for our sins because he never participated in our sins. And so when you accept Jesus as your king, as the saviour who died for you, you can be sure that now and forevermore, God feels about you the way he feels about Jesus. Pleased. And when you put your faith in Jesus as your King and as your Saviour, you can be sure that now and forevermore, God looks upon you the way that He looks upon Jesus. And He sees you as spotless, as clean, as innocent. None of our sins are counted against us. They are all forgiven by the blood of Jesus, even the shame of our sexual sins. And how freeing is it that we can come before our God and we can confess our sins, we can acknowledge to Him how rotten we really are. We can open up the blackness of our heart before our God and know that He will not reject us. Because in Christ Jesus, He has already loved us and already forgiven us. And that makes Jesus a king worthy of following. Jesus never abused His power like David did. He uses His power to rescue. Jesus never lusted after a woman like David did. For what Jesus desired was something even greater the glory of God and our salvation. And Jesus never ordered the death of someone, instead he suffered death for us. Jesus never asked anyone to do anything evil, but instead he bore the evil of others so that we might live. That is the kind of king that Jesus is. The kind of king that welcomes into his kingdom adulterers and murderers and whatever else it is that we have done. Jesus is the king that David never was. Jesus is the king that David needed. Jesus is the king that we need. And praise be to God, Jesus is the king we have.